You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. Here is a question from a child. Do kids know that they are rotting their brains when they use their phones? Well, there's no doubt about it. It's interesting that even kids know it when few adults seem to realize it. That's just one of the questions for part 11 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks, Todd. Happy to be here. This is a big question. Uh, what does God do all day? Yeah, that is such a fantastic question. And before I get to it, I think what I want to do, uh, I think from time to time it's important for us to do this. Uh, and this is really for our listeners and just a reminder for all of us. These questions are real questions from real kids, right? These are not just sort of metaphysical ideas. So parents out there, grandparents, pastors out there, you've got real kids in your life. And my encouragement to each and every one of you is to engage with them. And before I get to the answer to this question, I think I just want to speak very kind of like forthrightly for just a moment to parents. Parents, this is so important. I mean, I, I answer these learning journal questions every week, and these kids are asking phenomenal questions. And I guess my encouragement to you, pa- you parents is, one, put your phone down, turn your TV off, pick the Bible up, and read it to your kids. And also learn from good thinkers. You need to engage with your kids. And I know some of us out there think, but I'm not a reader. and I'm going to speak bluntly just for a moment to all of us. I didn't used to be a reader either. So the reason you're not a reader is because you don't read. It's the same reason that so many of us believe that we can't afford to tithe. That's because we're not tithing. It's, it's the same reason why so many of us think that we don't have the patience that we need to spend all day with our kids. It's because we're not spending all day with our kids. My point is this. Nobody's just born with the knowledge or the wisdom or the patience they need for life. Yes, I will grant that some of us have maybe certain propensities, but look, even a tall person has to learn how to play basketball, all right? So what I'm getting after here is we need to stop telling ourselves, I think parents, there's this tendency to say, well, I can't do that. We need to stop saying that and start doing it because that's how we get there. We don't get there sitting on the sidelines telling ourselves that we can't do it. We need to engage. So my, my encouragement for parents, for grandparents, for pastors, for all of us, engage. Start really tackling some of these questions. And if you don't know, go ask someone who does. But start participating in it with yourself, not just saying, oh, I listened to someone describe an answer. That's great. No, the goal here is for all of us now to engage in this and be good at 
providing good and solid biblical answers to questions. But to the question, what does God do all day? And I'm pretty sure this was one of those that a kid had asked four or five questions of the day. So sometimes <laughs> when a child asks four or five, and I have over 20 of these learning journals to get through in a day, I have to give shorter answers. So I have a shorter answer at first, but I'm going to expand upon it because I think there's some really some neat things to explore about what God does all day. So to the child, I say, and th the first I want to just kind of challenged lightly the way they think of the word day. So I say, well, is God governed by day? I mean, does he measure time by day and night? We do on earth, but those terms are specific to our experience on earth. Beyond that, I suspect he governs the universe and the heavenly realm. And I suspect that provides plenty for him to do. So short answer for the child, because I think if I went into any more depth, I'd have to write a book to the child. So I'll just expand upon it briefly now for the rest of us. Okay, this is fascinating. I, I think we we kind of have this misconception of God that he's just sort of alone up there, right? We have the concept of the Trinity, right? But we just think, well, he's just sort of alone up there. And that's simply just not the way the scriptures describe it. Obviously, beside from the fact that so many of the saints who have gone before us are in his presence. For example, if you go to the book of Job in chapter 1, Right, you have, and I'm just going to read a few verses because I think these are really insightful. So I want to unpack these just a little, just share them, maybe not even take the time to unpack them as much as we could, just because it would take me a full hour to do it. In fact, I did a whole, oh man, it was probably six months worth of Bible study on this sort of question. So we could go on for quite a while on it. But Job chapter one says this Now there was a day when the sons of God, the B'nai Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan, or literally the Satan, has the article the on the front of it, the Satan also came among them. So, I mean, think, whoa, whoa what's going on here? You've got these spiritual beings who are having this sort of council meeting in God's presence. And you, and it, you read that and you think, whoa, God's not sitting there alone. He's got other spiritual beings around him. Does the Bible talk about that anywhere else? Well, Actually, it does. Psalm 89 says this. I'm going to read a few verses, verses 5 through 7. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, or O Yahweh, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord, to Yahweh? Who among the heavenly beings is like Yahweh, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? So again, we've got these holy ones, and we've got this council. So we have this heavenly council, these spiritual beings who are in God's presence. Then you have a text over in Jeremiah 23, and Jeremiah basically is calling out these false prophets, and the Lord himself will call out these false prophets, and the Lord himself is going to make reference to his heavenly council. So Jeremiah 23, uh, selected verses in there, says this, for who among them, talking about the, these false prophets, who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his word? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? And then skipping forward a few verses, Yahweh now speaks. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. All right, so here you have Yahweh himself saying he has this sort of heavenly counsel. He's meeting with them in some capacity. 
These prophets, uh, they clearly have not come from the Lord. They're claiming to speak for God when uh, they do not have God's word. And God is saying, look, if they had been here in my council, they would have heard my word. They would have seen my word, which is a fascinating thought also. You have this show up multiple times throughout the Old Testament, and this would maybe be a sidebar sometime. But you have this interesting scenario, what we would call the pre-incarnate Christ, where Yahweh is not visible, and then his word the angel of the Lord sometimes referred to, is visible. So this idea of seeing the word, oftentimes it seems like they're seeing a person, the pre-incarnate Christ. That's fascinating. Nonetheless, uh, he's saying, they haven't sat in my council. They haven't heard what we've discussed, and yet they are presuming to go and announce my word. So he's calling them out. And then we have this, this is a fascinating text from 1 Kings 22. Uh, so this is where Ahab and Jehoshaphat, they're inquiring of the prophets, right? You know, should we go to war with Ramoth Gilead? And of course, all the false prophets are prophesying, yes, yes, go, go. It'll be wonderful. You'll be successful. You'll be famous. Everything will be great. And Jehoshaphat's like, you got anybody else here to uh, share a word? And Ahab's like, yeah, but I never like what he prophesies. <laughs> so they call him Micaiah. And of course, Micaiah, at first, he just mocks them and he just basically parrots the uh, false prophets. And Ahab gets all worked up and said, just tell me the truth already, all right? So then Micaiah says this. He says, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord, that's Yahweh, sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord, saying, I will entice him. And the Lord, Yahweh, said to him, By what means? And he said, I will go out, and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, You are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Obviously, lots of questions we could ask about that section of text, but for our purposes right now, just the idea of this council, that the Lord seems, he obviously doesn't need these spiritual beings, but he's created them, and he communicates with them, and he involves them in certain ways in the decisions that he's made. And so they are his messengers, they are his enforcers, they are the deliverers of judgment and so many other things. But they are involved in this conversation with God, like it's this heavenly council meeting. So, you know, what God does all day, it seems one governing the universe, but he's also in conversation with his heavenly council. So uh, I think that's it's just so fascinating to think about. And and like I said, I did a multi-month study on this, and I could go on for quite a while. But uh, what God does all day, he governs. I, he governs the world. He governs the universe. And uh, I suspect that keeps him actively engaged. And uh, we rejoice in that, that the God, God is the governor of the universe, and uh, he governs in wisdom. And you know, I, let me just add this as a brief aside, then we'll go to the next question. But that, that idea of God governs in wisdom. You see this come through, like, for example, in the book of Job. Um, that's the question, does God govern by wisdom? But I simply want to offer this because I think this is an important insight, this concept of God governing by wisdom. And I may have, may have highlighted this before in a previous question, another episode, but I want to highlight it again. We like to think that God needs to, he needs to 
sort things out so that it makes sense to us. And the way I conceptualize it is like this. When we look in the sky at night, we like to put together constellations. So we got five, six, 10 dots that we connect and we want it to make a, a picture, you know, Orion or the Big Dipper or something. And we want God to fit his, his governing into those dots, those seven or 10 dots. And what we're learning from scripture is that God governing by wisdom is not him fitting his acts into our seven dots, but he's basically saying, you see all those stars in the night sky more than you could ever count. They are all one big constellation. They all form one big picture. And that's, I'm governing according to this larger image, which is beyond your ability to comprehend. So God governs the world. He upholds it by his power and his might. And that's what God does all day. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. It's part 11 of our series, Kids Have Questions. We have a question about aliens next. Have you ever wondered about some of the more difficult topics or teachings of Scripture, such as what does the Bible say about polygamy or slavery or the free will, or what about law and gospel? The October issue of The Lutheran Witness is a twin to the August 2022 issue, and it takes up some of these difficult teachings of Scripture and explains them in detail. To get your copy, visit cph.org witness or the Lutheran Witness website witness.lsms.org. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Pumpkin spice flavored everything is in the air. It's the perfect time of year to curl up with a nice warm beverage using one of Ad Crusom's mugs, featuring your favorite Lutheran symbols, Bible verses, or Christian humor. For example, Jesus' personality type is INRI. St. Paul is the patron saint of the run-on sentence. And of course, chancel culture is practiced here. Visit adcrusom.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Public schools are increasingly chaotic and undermine Christian children's faith. We need to rebuild our Lutheran schools to provide a truly Christian alternative. Redeemer Classical School is rebuilding this Christ-focused education in Fort Wayne, Indiana, teaching students to wonder at God's creation and to love their neighbors. We need you to help us give children this faithful Christian education. Donations to Redeemer Classical School go directly to providing scholarships. Visit fortwayneclassical.com slash give. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who, who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu.
When talking with someone in distress, remember to distinguish the objective and the subjective. Our justification is objective. Pastors should instruct parishioners, and parishioners should remind one another that they should reject the subjectivity of emotional reasoning. Emotions cannot be trusted to reveal the truth. Remind them that regardless of how they feel, they are saved. That's from the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. Martin Luther on Mental Health. Practical advice for Christians today. You'll find this book at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, part 11 of our series on Kids Have Questions. Here's another one, Pastor Connor. Personally, I don't believe in aliens, but is there anything mentioned in the Bible about other life forms or even how God created other planets or the universe? Yeah, I love this question. I get this question, I think every year, I get at least one, sometimes more questions on aliens. So I know we may think, oh, that's a funny question from a kid, but I really don't think it's a funny question. I think it's a really curious question. And I suspect that many adults out there, well, if you haven't been paying attention, I mean, aliens come up pretty frequently in the news and no shortage of famous figures in our country's history have claimed to see some sort of alien or alien ship or something of that nature. So it's a perpetually relevant question. And I think for parents, this is one of those, it'd be very helpful for you to do a little bit of work on to maybe get an answer ready to go because your kids are going to ask you about aliens and the sort of, well, I don't know, answer to the question, probably is going to leave them wanting. I do have a brief article on my church's website, and I'm I'm sure you'll link to that, that addresses the alien question. There's also a great book by Gary Bates, B-A-T-E-S, called Alien Intrusion, where he does a whole study on this, and I'll reference that a little bit more in a minute. But uh, that's a great book-length treatment, which I would point people to. But here's what I say to the child. Great question. Let's think through this. First, There hasn't been enough time, even if we accept the billions of years proposed by evolutionists, for aliens to evolve and to develop the technology necessary to get to Earth. Consider the paragraphs below from an article I've included for you. So what I'm getting ready to read is an excerpt from the article that you can find on my church's website. And so I referenced the article for the child. Then I just printed the whole thing out and just gave it to them so they could read the whole thing. So here, I'm going to quote from the article. Consider a few stark realities. Light travels at an astonishing 186,000 miles per second. If you could achieve this speed, a feat we'll discuss below, it would take 4.2 years to reach the next closest star after the sun. To traverse our galaxy, it would take 100,000 years. To reach the next galaxy, like our own, and therefore the one with the greatest chance of supporting life, would take 2.3 million years. And the one after that is 20 million light years away. Are we to assume these little ETs hopped in their spacecraft, dropped it into warp drive, and zipped along for millions of years to flit around in our skies? Radar has picked up unidentified flying objects, but it has never detected one leaving our atmosphere. Where do they go? They're certainly not going home and back. Are they able to make physical structures disappear? Further, when you consider the physical realities of traveling at the speed of light, you quickly realize how hopeless such space travel is. Consider this. To propel an object that weighs one pound to a velocity 50% the speed of light 
would require an energy source equal to the energy of 98 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs to get something the size of the space shuttle to 50% the speed of light would require 23 million atomic bombs. It would require the same amount of energy to stop the craft. And lest you think this might somehow be achievable, these little aliens would also have to figure out how to avoid planets and stars. Worse, they have to figure out how to avoid the dust in space. Hitting a piece of dust at a mere 10% the speed of light would be like hitting 10 tons of TNT. At 50%, it'd be like slamming into 2.2 atomic bombs. Because of this, these little green dudes would need to develop a dust detection system that would be capable of traveling faster than the speed of light to detect the dust light years ahead of them so as to perform evasive maneuvers. But this would put such gravitational pressure on them that it would kill them. Anything over nine Gs kills people and destroys ships. Imagine the impact of millions of Gs. These are the hard realities standing between us and alien visitation. And to be as charitable as possible, even assuming evolutionary ages, there hasn't been enough time for such advanced life to evolve somewhere out there and get here. So that's my quoting the article ends. I continue with the answer to the child. Aliens have not visited Earth. They are not extraterrestrial beings. They are extra-dimensional beings. They are demons. So I talk about that more in the article, but I continue with the child. The Bible doesn't speak of life forms beyond Earth. Is it possible? Yes, but the Bible doesn't address it. But going back to what I wrote above, if there are alien life forms in space, they have not visited Earth for all the reasons listed above and in the article. The aliens people have encountered on Earth are spiritual beings from another dimension, i.e. demons. Now, did God create the other planets? Yes. Did God create other universes? The Bible doesn't address this question, and there would be no way for us to know another universe existed. It would be pure conjecture and guessing. Okay, so long answer. That's where it ends, and I'm going to expand upon this. Okay, some people will say, but what about the people who've been abducted? What they do, just make it up? Well, some of them probably have. I mean, people make up all kinds of things. I wouldn't say all of them have, but I would say some of them probably have. But I think many of them have had some sort of genuine experience, but not with extraterrestrial beings. What they likely experienced was extra-dimensional beings. And the Bible has a word for them, like I mentioned. It's demons. So, for instance, let me ask a few questions. Why do these so-called aliens and these alien abductees, why do they report that their abductors disparaged Jesus and his word? That's oftentimes what they report. Somehow these aliens are disparaging Jesus and his word. I mean, why would these aliens from supposed distant galaxies travel here just to ridicule Jesus and his word? And why is there such a lack of committed, confessing, practicing Christians reporting these abductions? Isn't that curious? And why do abductees report being released immediately upon the invocation of Jesus' name? I mean, why would these so-called aliens submit to Jesus? Don't we think these realities are just a little bit suggestive? All right, so I mentioned Gary Bates' book, and I highly encourage you to pick up a copy of Alien Intrusion. And he just has a lot of great information in there. I'm going to just let him have the last word here. I'm going to quote just a paragraph from the book. 
He says this, these entities are not real physical ETs from other planets. They are from another dimension. So to find their source, one needs to wear spiritual glasses. Unfortunately, most of these modern day researchers have embraced a humanistic based view of the world with the theory of evolution serving as the creator of both them and the aliens. This opens them up to spiritual deception and, in turn, has blinded them to the claims of the Bible, which makes God the creator. I suggest the answer they have been looking for, but do not want to hear, may be, God is real and the Bible is true. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest, Pastor Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. It's part 11 of our series, Kids Have Questions. Up next, what about sports teams? Martin Luther on Mental Health, Practical Advice for Christians Today is the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October. It's written by Lutheran layman Dr. Stephen Saunders, professor of psychology at Marquette University. Martin Luther on Mental Health is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040, or learn more at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for October, Martin Luther on Mental Health. This fall in creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. Pastor Connor, here's another one. Does God like us to have sports teams that we like because he may be afraid of people honoring that sports team instead of him? I find that to be such a refreshing question from a kid. I mean, even the fact that they're asking the question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a, a, a nuanced answer, but I just appreciate the fact that this child has asked it. And I think it's one that all of us would do well to ask. I don't think it's any stretch of the imagination to say that one of the major religions of American culture is sports. Let's just pretend you were to, let's just go back to our alien question. And if, and if we were these mythical aliens coming from a faraway galaxy and we were to come here on earth and try to figure out what was important to a culture, don't you think it'd be fairly easy to observe that sports are pretty important? I mean, we have our high priests and, and the referees and so forth, and we have the cheerleaders on the side, and they, they, they help with the whole liturgy and so forth that they lead during the ceremony. There's a whole religious 
piece to some of our adoration of sports. Now, like I said, I'm going to offer a nuanced answer, but I think the mere fact of asking the question is very valuable. So here's what I say to the child. Well, this is a danger with just about anything. We can like our farm more than God. We can like our abilities more than God. We can like a band or a scientist or an author more than God. Rooting for sports teams or enjoying a certain band's music or being inspired by a scientist or author can be a good thing, but we must guard against letting that good thing become our ultimate thing, the thing we give more devotion to than God. If that happens, it has to go. So that's where my answer ends to the child, but let me expand upon this. Let me maybe start with just an example from my own life. So years ago, when my children were younger, Sunday afternoon was NASCAR and NFL. That's how Sunday afternoon was spent. And as kids started to get older and uh, multiply in number, it became harder and harder for me to pay attention to both. And I found myself torn between the two, wanting to watch the game and then, you know, basically young children devolving into just chaos around me and it becoming a very stressful thing for my family. And I started to realize, well, one of the two has to go. Either I have to figure out a way to get rid of my kids or I need to let sports, at least for a season of my life, let them go and engage with my kids. And that was a painful thing for me. But I realized that in terms of the prioritizing of my vocations, I needed to get that straight. So I'm going to talk about that prioritizing of vocation in just a minute. But I also want to quote something from C.S. Lewis. And this has been something very meaningful for me. So this is, I think, in The Weight of Glory. But he talks about uh, when the time for eye plucking comes, right? I'm just going to read his quote because I think he's talking about the danger of the love of knowledge. So he's not talking about sports, but I think you could very easily just put sports in the place of knowledge. He's talking to academics and he's talking about when does knowledge become an idol, basically. He says, we may come to love knowledge or knowing, you could put sports in there, more than the thing known, to delight not in the exercise of our talents, but in the fact that they are ours or even in the reputation they bring us. Every success in the scholar's life increases this danger. If it becomes irresistible, he may give up his scholarly work. The time for plucking our right eye has arrived. So anything can become that idol. The thing that, you know, that we turn to first for comfort, for solace, for assurance, for stress relief, that thing we go to first is our God. And if it's sports, well, it's got to go. So if it's keeping us from receiving God's gifts, now, this is important. I think all of us need to ask this. If sports, whether watching them or playing them, is keeping us from being in worship, in the divine service, to receive the gifts that God has not only invited us to receive, but commanded us to receive, if it's in the way of that, it may be time to pluck out that right eye. So if it's keeping us from receiving the gifts, from hearing the words, from supporting his church, from our primary vocational responsibilities, then it has to go. If we can't afford to tithe because of sports, one of the two has to go. And I think we know the answer to it. But 
If our love for whatever it is enhances our love for it, deepens our appreciation of, widens our praise of God, then it's good. I remember the famous scene or the famous line, I think it was from the Chariots of Fire, when uh, you know, the main character is talking about his running. And he, he talks about feeling God's pleasure when he runs. So this running was a way that enlarged his appreciation and love for God. So if, if our love for these hobbies and things can in some way do that, praise God for that. But let me go back to, like I mentioned, prioritizing our vocations. I think this can be helpful for us. Uh, this is how I had to sort through it for me. So we all have various vocations, and they're not all equal in terms of priority, which one comes first. So if we had to rank them, like number one, two, three, four, this is just a rough sketch of how I've put it together. I'm certainly open to others maybe nuancing this or helping me clarify it, but this is how I think through it. Vocation number one, it's my vocation as a new creation of God, right? As a baptized child of God, that's my first vocation. So that means my first priority is hearing the word, receiving the sacrament, supporting the ministry. Vocation two is being in connection to my family, whatever that looks like, husband, wife, son, daughter, extended family, that family component comes here. Vocation number three would be work. And that can look a lot of different ways. We all have different vocations when it comes to work. So that's important. And let me just offer a side note here. I know that some of us have vocations, work vocations that require us to work on Sunday. And some of that may be beyond our control, but let me simply offer this. Some of that is in our control. And I think we should strive as hard as we can to prioritize that vocation number one. And I'll simply give a shout out. I watched this as a kid. This was my mom. She was an RN and uh, she oftentimes worked the weekend shift and she would work on Saturday night from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And I think any normal person at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning would have been headed home to go to bed. That's not what my mom did. My mom came home, got in the car with the family, and we went to church. And then after church, she went to bed. And she did that for a lot of years. I remember that. That was a priority for her. She, she understood that that first vocational priority was that child of God idea. And then vocation number four is simply everything else. So again, vocation one, child of God. Vocation two, the family component. Vocation three, your work piece. Vocation four, everything else. I think if we just put those in order and we start to think through our lives and say, okay, do I have things in my life that are causing me to get these things out of order? And if I do, then I'm going to have to do some adjusting to put them back in the right order. So that's how I would help people think through it. We're talking with Pastor Jonathan Connor, pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. Going through our series, Kids Have Questions. The question on the other side, do kids know that they're rotting their brains when they use their phones? We'll get his answer next. Lutheranism in the Public Square. You're listening to Issues Etc. In the mid-19th century, German immigrants boarded ships to cross the Atlantic Ocean for a new land called America. Opportunity, unknown challenges, and preserving their Lutheran heritage awaited them after their months-long journey. Learn more about the humble beginnings of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in the latest issue of Interest Time. Visit interesttime.org to request your free copy. 
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's our series, Kids Have Questions. Pastor Jonathan Connor is our guest. In about 10 minutes, Chris Rosebrook joins us to discuss Patricia King's claim that God is raising up millionaires. Folks, the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod Stewardship Ministry helps congregations grow in their understanding and implementation of a life of faithful Christian stewardship. LCMS Stewardship produces and freely distributes Bible studies, research, newsletter articles, bulletin sentences, prayers, and other stewardship resources. Learn more at lcms.org stewardship, lcms.org stewardship. Pastor Connor, do kids know that they're rotting their brains when they use their phones? Don't you love the way kids ask questions? I love this. And can't you just hear, this child has heard this at home. This isn't something necessarily a child came up on by himself. It was a dad or a mom at home saying, phones are rotting your brains, right? So, and so the child just parrots it, right? Which is what children do. They hear their parents, what they say, and they echo it. Now, parents who are listening, take note of that. Your children, whether they know it or not, they are going to echo you. They are going to say what you say and do what you say. So choose your words carefully. Don't be flippant with your words because your children will learn how to move through life by watching you. And I, I would highly recommend if folks didn't catch Katie Faust's interview with you, Todd, she went through this stuff and just did a marvelous job of laying out developmental stages and giving some, some wonderful insights to parents. In fact, let me offer this. This is a thank you to Katie, but I took her podcast and, and I texted it out to the whole congregation. We have a texting database that I'm able to send out mass messages to the congregation. I sent it out. I gave a, a video introduction beforehand and said, family of, of Zion, I want you to listen to this podcast. This is so good and so important for inculcating the Christian faith into the lives of children. I want you to listen to this. And Katie has some pretty strong things to say about cell phones, which I'm going to echo here in just a second. So if anybody missed that podcast with Katie, drop everything and go back and listen to us last week sometime. Just phenomenal. And pastors, send it out to your congregation. This is worth listening to over and over again so that uh, we can get a very simple and doable game plan for how to inculcate this Christian faith in our children. And yes, cell phones are a part of this and they're affecting our ability to communicate this faith to our children in some pretty surprising ways, which I'll expand upon after I give the answer to the child. So to the child, I say, great question. Kids' brains, this will come as no surprise to you, are not mature yet. So kids can tell you what they desire most, like junk food, in this case, junk food for the mind. What kids struggle with is understanding what is most desirable, what is ultimately best for them. So just like parents need to help their kids understand that they should train their brains and their taste buds to desire vegetables and fruits instead of chips, cheap carbs, and sugary treats, Parents need to help their kids understand that smartphones are essentially junk food for the brain. And just like eating lots of unhealthy food leads to unhealthy bodies, consuming unhealthy screen time produces unhealthy brains. So that's where my answer to the child ends. And before I expand upon it, I do want to put just a word out there of encouragement. I also partner with an organization called Lutheran Family Service. They're based out of Iowa, but now they're expanding to other states. They cover a lot of different areas of care for people, from teaching to counseling to adoption to life advocacy at our state capitol and so forth. And I'm one of their speakers. And one of the things I speak on is on the effect of screens, especially 
the excessive exposure to screen time and how this affects the brain. So I did a webinar for them. I think, Todd, you guys are going to link to it in the show notes. And I highly encourage people to go back and just watch that if you get time, where I will go into far more detail than I'm able to go in my answer right here. But I'll give a few resources in just a minute. This is a pressing area today. And if you're a parent with kids, you know that these screens are ubiquitous. And the, the battle, the war we have to fight against these screens sometimes is enough to exhaust even the strongest parent. So... To start with our question though, is excessive screen time affecting brains? Absolutely. Yes, a thousand times yes. I don't think there's any question anymore. Yes, it is. So what we know now from the research is, look, normal brain functions like this, from those early years to the high school years and on, the brain is supposed to move from focusing its function in the amygdala, which is like this center for anxiety, aggression, and fear, and so forth, to the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, which is the part responsible for the executive function and self-control. My kids hear about the prefrontal cortex all the time. They hear all the time, sorry, I get to make the decision because I'm the only one here beside your mother with a fully formed and functional prefrontal cortex. You guys are still growing. Okay, so this is the way that normal brain growth is supposed to go from the amygdala to the prefrontal cortex. But what are studies on excessive screen time showing? What they're showing is the brain is not making this move. It's not moving to the prefrontal cortex. So let me explain how this is supposed to work. In order for a youth brain to become an efficient adult brain, the neurons that are not being used in the brain get removed. It's called pruning. There's this pruning process that happens in the brain. Now, this you might may think, why in the world would the brain cut out these neurons? Well, because think of an expanding nation that needs to move its freight in the most efficient way. What's it going to do? Well, it's not going to have a thousand little side roads. It's going to start to build these expressways, these interstates, so that it can move its freight more efficiently. And that's basically what's happening in the brain. So it's pruning these less efficient are unused highways, and it's building these super highways that child's thoughts will travel down for the rest of their life. And this is actually shaping their unique personality. So again, the neurons that are not pruned, so the ones that are being used, they're what's called myelinated. So this is that insulating sheath that's formed around each neuron, and it allows it to move faster and more efficiently in the transmission of messages, or let's call it the freight of the brain, all right? The more the pathway or the highway is used, the more myelin there will be, the more efficient the travel, and so forth, so forth and so on. So this is normal. The pruning and myelination, that's part of the, the way the brain's supposed to work. But when we watch excessive screen time, what's starting to happen is this. The brain is pruning the neurons that are supposed to be there for executive function. And it's myelinating the ones that are there for anxiety and aggression and fear. Now, if you're listening, there should be red flags. You should say, that's not good. So it should be no surprise to all of us. And this is what the data show. As screen time goes up, every measure of emotional well-being goes down. Make sure you heard that, okay? As screen time goes up, Every measure of emotional well-being goes down. So we have seen significant rises in anxiety, in depression, and self-harm, in suicide ideation, and suicide attempts. And you can trace the charts. You can trace these things. So 
The iPhone is introduced in 2007. The smartphone saturates the population by 2012. So basically you get over 50% of the population with the smartphone. And then you watch the trend lines and they just map onto each other. And you can read the research, Jonathan Haidt, and that's H-A-I-D-T, and Gene Twenge, T-W-E-N-G-E. They've got wonderful research and data on this to show you the charts and just map it. And you go, wow, as cell phone ownership goes up, trace all the emotional problems that go with it. They just trace over each other just incredibly closely. And I want to point this out for all of us. For parents, this is for you because you have the same struggle and for your kids. But these devices and social media and, so, and online gaming and so forth, they're aiming after your kids, right? They're really good at what they do. And they have perfected the science of addiction. That's right, the science of addiction. So very briefly, you have the trigger, sometimes you call that the clickbait, all right? The action, the variable reward, and the addiction. So the variable reward is key, okay? So let me give an example. Let's say you have a, a refrigerator with an ice maker and you push the button, out comes ice. I have a feeling nobody is addicted to pushing that button to see if the ice comes out. Why? It's the same thing every time. But if every now and then a root beer float came out, I have a feeling there'd be a line in your house trying to push that button to see if it would come out for you. See, it's the variable reward. So it's the next level, it's the next prize, it's the next image, it's the next video, it's the next thing. It's the variable reward, and that stimulates this neurotransmitter dopamine. And this is being exploited big time. So think of dopamine as the sort of anticipation neurotransmitter. It's the thing that makes you anticipate to want something. It's not the thing that makes you enjoy it. It's the thing that makes you want something, to look forward to something. So this idea is it's the next thing. It's the, what could it be? It's the element of surprise. So they exploit this and that builds addiction. And so it's very hard for our kids to resist this. So without doing a whole presentation just on screens, I wanna add one more item. This is, cause this is important because I hear this sometimes from Christians. We say, oh, screens are just neutral, just the content. No, no. I'm not saying screens are evil, but I do want to say this. They are certainly not neutral. They're like fire or like cars. These things, they're not evil, but they're certainly not neutral. Like I said, lots more to say on this, especially on uh, what is a wonderful book just came out recently called Digital Liturgies by uh, Samuel James, where he talks about the disembodying nature of the digital world, that it deincarnates us, it disembodies us, and that tells a certain story, and it, and it teaches us to think in certain ways and to interact with people in certain ways, and they're not good. So I definitely recommend his book, Digital Liturgies. I recommend the uh, webinar I did for Lutheran Family Service. I also would highly recommend a couple other items. One is called ScreenStrong.com, ScreenStrong.com. They have a podcast and they have a whole curriculum and they give you all the data, the science behind this. It's really solid. And there's a wonderful video actually put out of all people by Netflix and it's called The Social Dilemma. That'll get your attention. You just Google social dilemma. I'm sure you'll find it somewhere online. It ought to get your attention and in some surprising ways. I think we need to do a better job of this in the church, talking about this and in equipping our parents, one for themselves to be able to put their phone down. Number two, to break our children away. I like to call this emphasizing the unpixelated three-dimensional world, the unpixelated three-dimensional world. And 
Todd, I think if Jesus were to tell his parable about the house on the sand today, he'd tell it about building your house on pixels. And I believe we're made for more than pixels. We're made for that unpixelated three-dimensional life. And that's going to take some hard work on our part to get there. But I firmly believe the reward is worth it. Pastor Jonathan Connor is pastor of Zion Lutheran Church in Manning, Iowa. You'll find links to Pastor Connor's column, Aliens, Extraterrestrial Visitors or Extradimensional Intruders, a video recording of Pastor Connor's webinar, Your Life on Screens, Understanding the Seen and Unseen and What You Must Do About It, and to Screen Strong on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Jonathan, thanks. Thanks a lot, Todd. When we return, this week in Pop Christianity, Patricia King claims that God is raising up millionaires. Pastor Chris Rosebro will respond after this. You can listen to our new audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression. It's voiced by the book's author, Pastor Todd Peppercorn, and includes an introduction voiced by Pastor Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Just go to issuesetc.org, enter your email address, and we'll send you a link to the audiobook, I Trust When Dark My Road, A Lutheran View of Depression, issuesetc.org, and enter your email address. The Gospels report Jesus saying some rather shocking things. For instance, in Luke 14, he tells his disciples, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. How can Jesus say such things? What about some of the other more difficult teachings of Scripture? Do you have questions about them? Well, we answer many of these in the October issue of The Lutheran Witness. Pick up your copy today at cph.org witness. The Lutheran Witness, interpreting the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Imagine this. What if you planned your vacation? You picked the location based upon where you knew there was a good Lutheran church. Well, we're here to let you know that if you're planning a Southern Oregon vacation, whether you visit Crater Lake, raft the Rogue, fish for salmon, or head down to the Redwoods, there's still a place for you to receive forgiveness. Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon. What's a vacation without the gospel? Faith Lutheran Church, Sundays at 10 a.m. Visit faithrogueriver.org. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org.